seated. Well, this morning we embark upon a sermon series from the books of Judges and Ruth. And I'm not sure about many of you, but I haven't heard a whole lot of sermons from the book of Judges. And I think this very well may be because of its realistic narrative of the life of Israel after the death of Joshua. Uh, Simply put, the life of Israel after the death of Joshua wasn't pretty. And this becomes very clear in the opening chapters of the whole book. This morning, we're going to sort of survey through Judges chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 6. And this is a long passage for a typical sermon, but we're doing this because this longer passage, 1, chapter 1, verse, chapter one, verse 1, through 3, 6, serves as an introduction to the entirety of the book. And in this introduction to the entirety of the book, it introduces major themes and it sets the tone for the whole. The first part of this two-part introduction really recounts the failure of Israel's attempt to conquer the promised land, the land of Canaan, after the death of Joshua. And in the second part of this introduction, it exposes the religious degradation of Israel also after the death of Joshua. Here in this entirety of the passage, we see both Israel's explanation for their failure and we see God's perspective upon it as well. Unable to fully conquer the land of Canaan, unable to drive out the Canaanites and their various tribes and personalities, Israel essentially says, we couldn't do it. God, however, sees their inability, he sees their failure, and he says, no, you wouldn't do it. The failure of Israel to drive out the Canaanites in conquest of the land, and thus their failure to establish a kingdom of God's people to be light, drawing the nations to Yahweh, and thus blessing the nations as God told Abraham they would, this stems directly out of the wouldn't. The people of Israel, we're told in the narrative, wouldn't obey God. They wouldn't be faithful to God. They wouldn't trust God and worship God alone. And so we see that they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. It's ironic, heartbreaking, I think, in fact, that the book actually begins with optimism and success. If you look at the earliest chapter of the book of Judges, we see that Joshua had died. Joshua, the the one who was Moses' hand-picked, God-picked successor in leadership. Joshua, who had led the people of Israel out of the wilderness into the promised land, crossing the Jordan River, conquering Jericho, and, and breaking the back of the Canaanite resistance. This Joshua had died. Near the end of his life, Joshua uh, allotted the land. He gave it out to the tribes, and he challenged the tribes, go and finish the conquest. Be faithful to God. Be faithful to Yahweh, and drive out the people. Do that which God had given you to do. And then he died without a hand-picked successor, without a God-picked successor. There was a, a leadership vacuum. But into that leadership vacuum 
Well, in the midst of that leadership vacuum, the people of Israel actually did the right thing. They began so well, the people of Israel. They went directly to Yahweh and said, who is to go up and fight for us? And when God says, Judah is to go, there's a response. A response of faithfulness, a response of activity. And the narrative here tells us that there is success in conquest. Judah is able to conquer. Judah is able to drive out. Judah is able to take over cities. Until that is chapter 1, verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19 is a real turning point, not only in this chapter, but in the narrative of the whole. Trying to fight the Canaanites in the plains or in the low country, Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Judah came up against a greater military force, a military force with greater technology than they had. And, and so that which had started with so much promise gets sideways. And they say, we couldn't. We couldn't defeat them. They were far too well equipped. We couldn't defeat them. And God says, couldn't or wouldn't. The rest of the narrative of the conquest is, at best, a mixed bag. Again, there is some success in chapter 1, but remembering that God had directed the complete conquest of the land and the complete driving out of the Canaanites, the incomplete conquest of Canaan was a complete failure. And we read this repeated refrain, Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan, all did not drive out. They suffer varying degrees of defeat. In fact, the defeats grow worse as the book of Judges unfolds in chapter 1. The, uh, the, the defeats grow to the point where the failure of Israel first allowed the Canaanites to live among them. And then the narrative says, now the, the tribes are living among the Canaanites. And as the narrative of conquest, the failure of conquest comes to an end, it's the tribe of Dan that is totally defeated and driven into the hill country. Chapter 1 is an absolute failure for the people of Israel. They could not defeat the enemies. They could not do that which God had given them to do. And so you may be asking yourself the, the, this morning, why is this a big deal? And I want to explain and share a little bit about why it is a big deal that the people of Israel failed in their conquest of the gift that God had given them, the land of Canaan. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God gave the people of Israel what we might call their marching orders. They were to go into the land that he had given them. They were to drive out the people and to break down their altars and to burn their idols. This has to do with the missional intent that God had for the people of Israel. They were to be fully his people. They were to be holy and set apart to and for him so that through them he might call and bless nations to himself. And in order for them to be fully his, God knew that the persistent presence of the Canaanites would result in the degradation of Israel's spiritual life, which leads to the degradation of the moral life. And I think Barry Webb's note on this is very helpful. This conquest, this war that God had sent them upon, was to stop Israel from simply merging into pagan environment, into its in pagan environment, and thus ceasing to exist. But the people of Israel couldn't get it done. So there's real threat to who God has called them to be. There's real threat to what God had called them to do. 
Seemingly, they were intimidated and afraid of the overwhelming odds they faced, transitioning from the Bronze Age into the Iron. The people of Israel had inferior weapons. From the narrative, they at least didn't have the chariots of iron the inhabitants of the plain possessed, and so the narrator, narrator tells us they couldn't defeat them. But God's perspective is very different, and this becomes quite plain as the Lord sends his messenger with an indictment, starting in chapter 2. This messenger, this angel of the Lord, comes to the people of Israel with a word from the Lord, and he says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. It's not a matter of couldn't. It's a matter of wouldn't. From a certain perspective, you see, the people of Israel had always been the underdogs. The people of Israel were never an overwhelming military force. They'd never had cutting-edge military technology, and yet they had conquered Jericho, and they had defeated so many of the Canaanite city kings, not because they're powerful in themselves, but because Yahweh fought for them, just as he said he would do in Deuteronomy chapter 7. While the people of Israel kept covenant, Yahweh fought on their behalf, driving their enemies before them and giving them victory. And in the proclamation of his messenger, God's point is that they wouldn't conquer because they had lost faith with Yahweh. They had broken the covenant with Yahweh. And so their military failure, the incomplete conquest, which allowed the Canaanites to persist among them and compromise their political integrity, had spiritual roots. They had done evil in the eyes of the Lord. The second half of our passage for this morning shifts from looking at the military failure to the looking at the spiritual failure. And that's what we heard this morning as John read for us, beginning at chapter 2, verse 6. Again, the pl author places the second introduction and its theme of spiritual degradation, spiritual decline within the context of Joshua's death. Near the end of his life, Joshua, this faithful leader, had led the people through a ceremony renewing their covenant with Yahweh. He challenged them, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And on that day, in Joshua's hearing, near the end of his life, in that generation, the people of Israel roundly proclaimed their intent to serve Yahweh. But then Joshua died, and his generation with him. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. Here's the thing we need to recognize. This generation of the people of Israel did not know Yahweh. In that context, in that language, in that form of the word, it isn't a matter of intellectual ignorance. It is a matter of willful rejection. 
They did not know Yahweh means they did not believe, they did not trust, they did not embrace Yahweh. And so this is not an accident. This is not a failure of the fathers or of the priests or of the mothers. This is a choice of willful rejection of Yahweh and a choice to willfully walk into the spiritual adultery of idolatry and worship the false gods of the Canaanites. This service and this worship of the Baals and of the Ashtaroth, that is what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil, spiritual malignancy is found in the people of Israel willfully abandoning Yahweh, the one who called them out of Egypt, delivered them across the Red Sea, sent them into the promised land and gave them conquest. They willfully rejected him, and that is evil. And they willfully bow down to Baal, and that is evil. And they willfully bow down to the Ashtoreth, and that is evil. And this evil has, as we will see in the coming weeks, horrific effects upon the people, and it was direct violation of the will of God for his people. And in this then, seeing his people abandon him, seeing his chosen people who were to be set apart and holy abandon him and turn themselves over to the idols of the Baals and the Ashtoreth, that made God angry. He pledges then to not drive out the Canaanites, but rather to leave them remaining in the land as a test for the people of Israel. Why could they not defeat those with the iron chariots? Because they couldn't? No, because they wouldn't. Because they wouldn't be faithful to Yahweh, because they rejected him, because they prostituted themselves to idols of the land, and so he withheld his hand of favor. He delivered them over. He, in fact, says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as the fathers did not. The rest of the book of Judges is essentially about the people of Israel failing the test. Given a choice, repent and return to Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of the Exodus, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or continue down this path, this path of self-made will, this path that leads only towards destruction. Judges tells us Israel chose resoundedly destruction. This dual introduction to the whole of the book ends with these verses in chapter 3. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Israel failed. They said they couldn't. God's perspective is that they wouldn't. They wouldn't obey they wouldn't keep covenant. They wouldn't trust him. Now, at this point in the sermon, you may be asking yourself, why in the world are we launching off onto an entire sermon series about, on a book filled with failure? I'm glad you're asking yourselves that question right now. I would like to provide for you uh, three answers. Well, there, there's really three answers, but uh, before anything else, let me just say that Judges is within Scripture, the Holy Scripture that Paul says is revealed or inspired, breathed out by God. So it is an inspired word from God that we ought to look at and ought to study. That's sort of the subtle subtext, sub-reason. But there's three main reasons why we're going to look and preach through uh, the book of Judges. First, we're preaching through the book of Judges and Ruth, the books of Judges and Ruth, because in them, 
we learn and are reminded of God's character. This book, this book of Judges, it reveals God's holiness. It reveals God's glory. And it reveals God's grace-filled, loving kindness as he patiently endures the unfaithfulness of Israel as he works for their deliverance. You see, God will not stand idly by as his honor and glory are besmirched and as worship that is rightfully his is given to another. He will not stand idly by as an interloper intrudes upon and seduces his covenant relationship with his people. He won't. Simply put, God will not do nothing. As one commentator puts it, the intensity of his wrath at threats to this relationship with Israel, it arises out of the profundity of his covenant love. Because he feels so deeply, he must respond vigorously. I think it's been important for us to recognize, folks, that, that the opposite of love is not a, a, a willingness to allow someone to go and do and be whatever they think they want to go and do and be. That's indifference, right? The opposite of love is indifference, and God is not indifferent to his people, we in this modern world think that uh, we, if we're loving and kind, well, I'll just accept who you, for you, who you are, and I will endorse and embrace your behavior. But that's not what God does, and that's not real love. Rather, God, we are told in the New Testament, disciplines his children, those that he loves. And so it is that God, in caring for his people, he loves them, and so when his people wander from him, and we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. He corrects them, and sometimes his correction is harsh and is painful. But it is for the good of his children, as the author of Hebrews points out in chapter 12, verses 5 through 13. God disciplines his children for our good that we may share his holiness. And so this seems to be what God is doing in the book of Judges. As he tests the people of Israel, as he gave the people over to the plunderers and oppressors, his desire is to discipline them in order to bring them to repentance, and in repentance, thus, back to life with him. And while it may and does seem pretty harsh, I think we can say that this is actually, the discipline of the holy God is actually grace. It's actually loving kindness. When you discipline your children, if you have children, when you did discipline your children, did you do it out of a loving kindness and a desire for them to have a better life, a better way to be? Why would God the Father be any different? And so it is in this book that we learn about God's holiness. We learn about God's sovereignty. We see that God oversees all of history. We, we see his grace shine through because he operates on behalf of his covenant people. Even when they are unfaithful, God remains faithful, and he operates on behalf of the people. He delivers them through judges or deliverers. They cry out to him in the midst of their affliction, and he responds. And sometimes they don't even cry out, and he still responds with rescue. And so we're preaching through judges because we can learn a lot about God, his sovereignty, his grace, and his holiness. We're also preaching through Judges because, quite frankly, it leads us to Jesus. In a few weeks, we'll start looking at the Judges, the Deliverers themselves, and in spite of their various character flaws, and there are a lot of character flaws in men like Gideon and Samson, in spite of their various character flaws and their own personal degradations, each of the Judges, the Deliverers, 
will point us towards the judge, the deliverer to come, who is Jesus. These judges are God's grace-filled provision to rescue people from oppressors. Jesus is God's grace-filled provision to rescue people from the oppression of sin and brokenness. The problems that we first encounter in the book of Judges are problems that are spiritual and political that will plague the people of Israel and the kingdom continuously through the rest of the Old Testament. This reveals, I think, a need for a king that will be more than just a political savior or a military judge. This reveals the need, the deepest human level need to have a changed heart, mind, and soul. And so as we look at the book of Judges, we see the need for the judge who can change not just our external circumstances, but the inner self that can change our heart and thus change our character and our behavior. And so as we look at the book of Judges, in the midst of the bad news, we can and we will find hints of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the need for the true judge, the true king to come and establish his kingdom. So we look at the book of Judges to learn about God and the Savior. He provides Jesus. Finally, we are preaching through the book of Judges because it reveals relevant dangers to the church and to churches. Reading, I'm going to encourage us, when we see Israel in the book of Judges, let's not think about a modern nation state. Let's think about the church. If we read Israel as the church and not as a geopolitical nation state, we can discern habits of heart and dangers that come from the world. The reality is either God's people will change the world or the world will change God's people. Folks, the church will either change God's world or the world will change God's church. Israel was either going to change the Canaanites and drive them out and thus change the world, or they were going to be changed by the Canaanites. The book of Judges is about the Canaanization of Israel. And so the reality is for us, there is no neutral ground when it comes to the church and the world around it. The reality of the life of the church that Jesus builds and is building is that it is surrounded on all sides by the world. It is called all the same to be missionaries and ambassadors. We heard that just this morning in our gospel reading. Jesus said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so as we look at the book of Judges, we see the dangers of assimilation and compromise with the world that we are supposed to change. Instead of changing the world, the people of Israel were changed by the world, as David Beldman has stated, becoming more and more conformed to the image of the pagan nations, to the point where you can't tell the difference between a Philistine and Samson. Judges is a highly relevant book for the modern church of all cultures, especially our American context. Daniel Block has expressed his concern when he writes, like the ancient Israelites We, too, are being squeezed into the mold of the pagan world around us. Our propensity is to displace thy kingdom come with my kingdom come. We're encouraged to throw off the supposed shackles of the Almighty God for the supposed right to declare right and wrong for ourselves, good and evil, for ourselves, truth and lie, for ourselves. We're encouraged to be God for ourselves by our inner beings and by the outer world around us. 
But that is a path that will only lead to destruction. This truth and this inevitable consequence are reflected in what philosopher and sociologist Philip Reif has written. Man wills to create himself and then recreate himself at will. That way lies the will to destruction. A great way to summarize judges. And a great way to summarize the threat to the church in the world today. In his book on Esther, author and pastor Mike Cosper is, is quite pointed when he writes, in ways both overt and subtle, Christians are under pressure to conform to the values of a secular age. The overt ways are even more powerful. The overt ways are reported and debated regularly on cable news. The subtle ones are even more powerful. Immersion happens through mass culture, television, movies, music, social media, and ever-evolving mobile technology. These forces not only work on our imaginations through stories and ideas, they change the way we live our lives. Our thoughtless participation in a consumeristic culture of perpetual entertainment is a clear sign as any of our assimilation. We can sprinkle holy water on it by throwing Christian media consumerism into the mix and by enshrining Christian celebrities alongside the Miley Cyruses of the world, but ultimately, most of us are deeply ingrained in a soul-forming way of life in service of consumption, distraction, and idolatry. What Mike Cosper writes about the church can be said about the book of Judges, and so we study Judges. Because there we see that assimilation, cultural captivity, leads to forgetfulness, the willful rejection of God. Forgetfulness leads us astray and away from the triune God has, who has welcomed us into his loving embrace as idols are willfully embraced. Forgetfulness over time leads to thoughtful, thoughtlessness, thoughtlessness, which philosopher Hannah Arendt has called an outstanding characteristic of our time. Folks, we don't even think about God anymore. This is the pattern of judges, immersion and assimilation, leading to degradation of Israel, spiritually, morally, politically. Immersion led to thoughtlessness, which over time led to forgetfulness. And this is a relevant warning to Jesus' church. So we look at judges in the midst of its failure to see the holiness and grace of God. We look at the book of Judges in the midst of people crying out and God's willingness to rescue with Judges, we see Jesus. And we look at the book of Judges to hear and heed the warning against forgetfulness that we might turn to the means of grace God has appointed to sustain our memory, to sustain our thoughtfulness, the Word and the sacrament. We study Judges because we need God, we need Jesus, and we need to be wholly His. I've said this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy and gracious God, we praise you and we give you thanks. For you are loving and kind. You are slow to anger and patient. And you, Lord, respond to your people when they cry to you with grace. We pray as we begin this look at the book of Judges that you would be at work in these words. Help us to see your, you clearly. Help us to see our need for Jesus and help us to take heed of the warnings. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and offer adoration to our King.